it, it's a weird, we've been preparing for a long time. So generative AI has been out for a while, a long time, GPT-1, GPT-2, GPT-3, there's BERT, there's other models. And we've been using them with clients on all kinds of projects for a long time. But I don't think any of us expected what happened in November last year when it was presented in a way that made it accessible to so many more people. Because mm. even those generative models, we were building into solutions for specific things and all of a sudden making it generally available. It did feel like we were all moving along at a really nice clip and then a step function happened. Something it's you know something happened that dropped it into all of our laps and caused a different discourse with everyone. Welcome to the Search and Succeed podcast. I'm Rob Glass, managing partner of Hunston Partners. We are so fortunate to share many journeys with some exceptional people throughout their careers, people whom are thriving in their area of expertise. And on this podcast, we'll be chatting with them about how they perceive and strive for success within their industry and their life. And always delighted to be here with the wonderful Joe Moore and David Cohen. I hope you enjoy. It's a great pleasure that we welcome Brett Greenstein back to the podcast for his second appearance as a special guest. He just couldn't stay away. And while we love having him here, Brett's insights and expertise were invaluable during the first podcast. And quite simply, we're thrilled to have him join us again with his real depth of knowledge in the fields of artificial intelligence and digital transformation. Brett brings a unique perspective and deep understanding of the opportunities and the challenges that we face as Generative AI and chat GPT enters into all of our worlds. We can't wait to hear what he has to share with us this time around. Welcome back, Brett. It's really wonderful to be here with you again, Rob. How is uh, how is the East Coast right now? We're in a relatively rainy and not very nice March in the UK. Uh, as I look out the window, it's I think it's rained for the last 30 days. How is it over on on the east coast spring is coming spring is coming it is little buds on the trees we get you know some days that are just you know beautiful and warm others that are not but it is the east coast but at least it's beginning so good the good times are ahead yeah exactly i think a bit of sunshine brings uh brings happiness to us all and to be on this podcast with you again brett talking about the subject of ai and generative ai and 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 i think something that's on the tip of everyone's tongues at the moment uh, it's great to have you as a guest to be able to talk about this because I know you are in this world and in this conversation every day right now. I uh, we well we wanted to really pick your brains on a lot of it, uh, mm-hmm. and I thought it would be just a good place to start to just go back a little bit from you know 2023 right even just going back five ten years or so. You've been in the world of data and AI for a number of years. I know it obviously transcends back many decades but if we kind of go back I don't know five or ten years or so Brett what 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 was artificial intelligence five or ten years ago when you were talking with clients and and, and delivering you know first you make it sound like we've all been working a really long time we're not <laughs> um, but, 
It wasn't related to you, but more so. Oh, okay. Just the space in general. Um, you know, AI and machine learning has been around for a, a while. And I think for, for most of that time, um, while it's continued to improve and benchmarks improve and performance improves, it's been really limited to the world of data scientists. You had to be of a certain skill set to be able to put AI to work on any problem. And so a lot of people were moving into it just so they could kind of build predictive models or do machine vision or speech to text, very narrow use cases that required really deep data science. And while it was growing, the impact wasn't felt by most people. I was talking to someone yesterday, um, he's an accountant, and he said, this is the first time I've ever heard about AI in a way that I actually cared. And that's now. Until then, it was just that thing that other people do. Uh, and and my, my mom wrote me after ChatGPT came out and she sent me something she had done in it. And I thought it was, shocking because she didn't use a microwave for the, a long time after they came out. Yeah. He's not a first early adopter, but I think it's reflective of the fact that it's very consumer friendly. Mm -hmm. And so what, what everyone was doing for those decades was building out the capabilities that enable it to be widely accessible, but they hadn't packaged it. And it also didn't have the scale and cost factor that it could reach a lot of people. So it was very expensive to do for a very long time, yeah. um, only been done by a few people. And so you couldn't really expose it to the world. And uh, it's reached a tipping point in both cost and performance, you know, and capability that now you can put it out there and um, and people are doing incredible things with it. I think that I think that will resonate with a lot of people, the accountant you were speaking to, as far as it was it's a thing and it's there for the technical guys, but gosh, okay, today now it's in our world. It just felt out of reach. Mm. Well, couldn't use it. And I, I do understand that most people still don't understand generally how it works, which also makes it a little bit fun because people who are new to this space or just kind of exposed to it for the first time, they often say words like it's magic, it's witchcraft, that's not possible. It's just, you know, they, they just can't get in their mind why it is able to do the things it is able to do. And there's tremendous math and science behind it. But all you see is what you're exposed to, which is this put in a prompt, get an amazing answer. Like they just can't envision how that happens and in the last five or ten years or so have you i know you're a very forward-thinking person and you're in this space all the time so have you been preparing your clients for what the world that we live in as in today but then also what's coming in the next few years it, it's a weird we've been preparing for a long time so generative ai has been out for a while a long time gpt1 gpt2 gpt3 there's bert there's other models and we've been using them with clients on all kinds of projects for a long time. But I don't think any of us expected what happened in November last year when it was presented in a way that made it accessible to so many more people. Because mm. even those generative models, we were building into solutions for specific things and all of a sudden making it generally available. It did feel like we were all moving along at a really nice clip and then a step function happened. Something, it's, you know, something happened that dropped it into all of our laps and caused a different discourse with everyone. So it's, it just became a bigger topic. It's not that it's new. It's just new for everyone. You know what I mean? That's, that's the difference. It's been here. It just wasn't exposed in a way that made it visible to everyone and useful in a wide range of everyday things. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just thinking about that a bit wider, you know, obviously the impact now, because it's so much broader, just trying to understand, um, obviously, when anything like this comes along, there's positives and negatives in terms of impact. Just, understanding kind of your view around that and also what do you think we can do to help people see this 
sort of technology progression as a really positive thing. This is probably the world's largest change management exercise in history, um, because it up until now, things would come out, you know, iPhones, browsers, all kinds of stuff. And we all adopted it at whatever pace we felt like doing. And this adoption rate has been so fast and the capabilities are so wide reaching. Um, it took a long time from iPhone to App Store to killer apps to all the stuff that people are on now. Um, whereas here, kind of out of the box on day one, it already did a wide range of the things we all do every day. So we're, we, we believe that this is really about, yes, the technology, but it's about the people. So I think we're all in a future shock kind of moment where there's been a this step function capability introduced into our world. And, you know, there's fear, there's anxiety, there's excitement, there's a lot of confusion, like, what does it really do well? What does it not do? And so I saw an article the other day, someone said, you know, welcome to your new colleague, it's AI. So somewhere in the workforce, there's all of us, and there's also AI. And when you welcome new colleagues, you know, there's an onboarding, there's a get to know, a meet and greet, and all that stuff. We haven't done that yet. So collectively, we're all sort of starting to use, but we haven't really registered how it works alongside us, how it helps us to work better. Um, even though we just keep calling it it is is not very, you know, um, welcoming. But I, I do I do believe this is a, a change management opportunity. So we're doing massive internal education. Um, we look at different tiers. There's practitioners, people who really build with it. There's people who have to be knowledgeable about it because be transforming what they do. And then a lot of people who need to be aware. And in the aware part, it's really important to recognize what it's good at and what it's not. Um, I think when uh, when you see stuff on the internet about this and someone says, oh, it said something wrong or it hallucinated or it did something, it's because we're expecting it to be perfect because we do anticipate that AI is perfect. And yet we are so far from perfect. Mm -hmm. And so what we should recognize is that generative AI is productive, really productive at a lot of things, but it, it doesn't mean that we can abdicate responsibility for the output. And so you can ask it a lot of things and it can produce code and text really, really fast, but you still have to read it. You still have to think about what it means. You still have to try it and test it. And so this idea that you've just brought in a really productive new hire, that's really what it is, a brand new out of college new hire, but you haven't trained it and you're not going to give it responsibility for signing contracts and putting it in front of your most important clients. It's a part of the team. And because it sounds so confident, and has such a wide range of capabilities, people assume it's a 20 year experience veteran and it's really an entry hire with a lot of skills. So you have to think of it that way and then figure out how do you work with this entry hire? How do you develop those skills? How do you, you know, use that ability to help you be better, but you know, don't abdicate responsibility. That word responsibility is one that I was keen to bring up because we read quite a bit about responsible Right, responsible AI and ethical AI. Yeah, uh, I noticed actually an article you shared yesterday. I think it was a, a, a one from your firm that then segued into responsible AI and, and what that means. And you know, you mentioned I think off air actually before we started about how it's having an impact on people both in in every format and what that means to them. What, what's your thoughts on the responsibility of this new technology of AI and how? Uh, the ethics behind it and the impact on people and their livelihoods 
is going to is going to change. What what's your thoughts on the responsibility element? I, this is one of those topics we've all been talking about for a very long time. I think it's just become so much. It's amplified because of the reach of AI now. It's you know, a technology itself is not ethical or unethical. It's what people do with it. But I do think there's best practices and regulations required in order to help sure make sure it is used responsibly. Mm. What AI does in so many ways is is automate and amplify a lot of what we've put into it, and so. Not everything we put into the internet and every other training set that's used for AI is good or accurate or, you know, and as a predictive model, it behaves, you know, it's not prescribed, it's predictive. It may answer correctly, it may not, it may be biased, it may not. And I think you have to recognize all those strengths and weaknesses and then build a responsible AI program. If you're implementing AI, you must have the kind of oversight and governance on that to make sure you're doing it in a way that's responsible for your employees, for your customers, for society, for your brand. Um, so a lot of thought goes into that. We have policies and practices that we use, for example, to ask ourselves the reach and the impact, to look at the data sources, but also the kinds of output that we get, and whether we feel it could be inherently biased or it could create that. And you can't do that with just data scientists. So with AI reaching so many more places, you need people who are representative of people. You know, you need to have an oversight committee that has representative diversity, for example. You need to have different roles in place, legal and risk and HR, just other roles, not just technology roles. Um, I, I don't want to equate it with other dangerous technologies, but it is so powerful that it can be dangerous. It's also so powerful, it can be highly productive. And I think we're all asking ourselves, you know, really hard questions about how and where to apply it in ways that generates business value, positive customer experience, great employee experience, uh, doing all those things, those are great goals without bringing some of the downside risks that have happened many times in AI. They've happened also with other technologies, but it's amplified because it's just, it, it works fast and at scale. I don't want to ask negative questions, I suppose. I want to talk about positives of it for sure. But you talk about their organizations being responsible for their actions with it. But from a wider societal perspective, how far does it go as far as government intervention and, and interference as far, you know, to, to ensure, you know, that responsibility to uh, to mankind, I suppose, you know, that, that's how big we're talking about the impact of this technology. Really difficult question. Um, one highly politicized and also every country has a different set of policies and thoughts about this. And so even if one country were to heavily regulate, for example, other countries wouldn't, and it really wouldn't solve the problem. Mm. So I think that there's been protections in place up till now that have limited liability for companies as they implement. Um, that was really necessary in the early days of the internet to drive wider adoption. Um, but I think, you know, it's really time for regulators to think strongly about the accountability and um, implications, liability, really, of, of companies as they implement these systems. Because most of this, yes, it's also being implemented by governments, but it is also being implemented by companies. And I think in both cases, there have to be you know, clear rules and guidelines on liability and, and assessing impact. It's... Um, it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle with the technology like this. And there's, it, there's too many people working on it. It's open source. It's everywhere. Um, but holding people accountable, which has not really happened for quite some time in the space, because there was a lot of rules that enabled the internet to operate with a little bit less accountability, um, that has to change because now the scale and impact is just much bigger. Obviously, there's there's that that fine balance between positives and negatives. Um, you know, there's uh, and there's there's so many applications with the with the access of 
generative AI today to enterprise, to commercial business, to the the regular Joe sitting on their sofa, just just playing around and seeing what's possible. Um, right. What what are the questions? What are the common questions that your clients are asking you? What are the common applications that you're seeing? What what are the most bizarre applications that you're seeing? Uh, oh, that last one's hard. I have to think about that. But the um, the questions are great questions because people people it is so viral because people realized it could do the things we do every day: coding, writing, reading, summarizing, analyzing. And so because of that, there was a wave of initial reaction where companies either blocked it actively and said, no employee can use this because you might put our data into the internet. Um, and then others who were more progressive who made it available, but the next step is they start making it um, available internally and private. Mm. So that's what we did. We made it, we allowed it to be used. We create very strong acceptable use policies to make it clear not to put data into it. And then we immediately worked to bring it in house. So we actually have the ability to use it securely. That's the pattern that most companies are going down is to figure out how to get access to it securely, which is which is not it, it, it's doable through the cloud vendors. And so that's a phenomenal capability because now you can leverage the collective knowledge of a large language model inside the walls of your intranet and also provide confidential inputs and outputs in a way that allows you to get the benefit of AI without the data privacy exposure. Now, it's still there's a lot of work that goes into doing it, but it's doable. And so because of that, that's what companies are really thinking about is now that I've made it available inside, um, people are asking questions around responsible use and policies. Do I let everyone just build whatever they want or mm -hmm. do I have some oversight on it? And most companies are putting in pretty good oversight. Uh, it, it's not something you want everyone using and, and learning from it, but you don't want everyone building with it. It's still a very powerful capability that needs to be done by people who have a responsibility for it. I remember when I was um, just becoming an engineer, uh, there's a group in Canada, the Society of Engineers, and you have to take an oath that you're going to use your engineering knowledge for the good of mankind. And we all stood up and took an oath. And I wasn't in Canada, I just joined it because it was really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And they talked about how engineers built this bridge that had fallen and, and cost people lives. And so everybody got this ring made of stainless steel to remind us of the steel from the bridge and how important it is to engineer responsibly. And that carried with me my whole career. I've always thought about that because building a system now with AI carries that same responsibility. It can affect people, not just physically, but in all kinds of other profound ways. And so um, I, we kind of view that the people who build with it as a smaller set. It's, it's a much, it's a discipline. It's not something everyone does. And I think while ChatGPT and others have become democratized in the sense that people can all see it and use it, not everyone should all be building because it's there's actually a lot of really hard work that goes into doing it well. Do you think that there's a, a, a big impact on different industries, Brett? So mm -hmm. even if you think about the industry that, that you're in and then kind of end user industries as well, both positive and negative, what yeah. what what kind of impact do you think it'll have on, on different industries? Well, generally very, very positive impact. The, the, it's a difference how you look at it. I think the productivity benefits um, are, are huge. And we look at the value chain of every single sector and we looked at the tasks and activities people do. Yeah. And fundamentally, if somebody is typing on a keyboard or reading something, that thing that they're doing could be done in a way that is enhanced by AI. So if you're writing something, obviously it can write really, really well. You have to get better at how to prompt it. 
And so if you're writing code, it produces code really quickly. It debugs code, it documents code, and it does it sort of tirelessly and consistently. So I was talking to a healthcare company and they do these, these, these letters with templates if they deny or approve coverage for something. And it's a very high volume activity. And they've realized they can use generative AI to produce those approval or denial letters and also to adjust the tone in ways that make it more um, satisfactory for the person who receives the email. Uh, and they can do it at very high volume. They can tailor and tune the, the style and tone. They can create the formatting and they just do it at scale. And previously people were cutting, pasting, templating. There was even a little bit of automation, but it's very rigid. And now it's very flexible and very fast. Um, we're, we're talking to people, obviously, who build marketing copy. And it's just silly to have to write something if you can prompt something and get the bulk of it and then just edit it. Coders who are using it very heavily to generate code, not finished product, but generate code which then they can tweak and edit. Or when they get problems in their code, ask it to debug. Or they'll get code and they'll say, is this compliant with the standard that we use in our company to write code? Um, is it well documented? Is it well formatted? We've asked it to improve performance of SQL queries, and it does a phenomenal job. So I think the fact that the things people type and do and read, like uh, one more thing, content, people who read contracts, people who read policy, people who read even bulk emails, to get summarization of that and to be able to Q&A these massive documents is amazing. Give it two contracts and say, what's the difference between these two contracts? That's amazing. That's really yeah. hard to do. Um, without AI, but doable now. And we've given it massive knowledge bases of our own best practices. And then we're able to just query, just ask, well, how do I do this? Or how do I do that? Or has anyone ever tried this before? And it pulls it out from that. And I think what uh, we all recognize is it's highly productive, highly cross industry. And you asked about the positive or negative. If all of us can work a little bit faster and have um, more time to think rather than to type, uh, to the raw typing, then we become better at critical thinking. We become better at asking questions. We become better at assessing output rather than the mechanics of the tasks that we do. And it's really hard to overestimate how much manual typing, editing, how many times do you type and then backspace to fix the way you typed? How many times in a day do you do that? Nobody even adds it up anymore because we're just so numb to the fact that we are constantly writing and editing and changing and fixing. Yeah. And, you know, this does that. I, I got asked this morning to to create a nomination for an award. And I started writing. I'm like, why am I doing that? So I just typed the major points I want to cover, gave it to ChatGPT. It generated a really beautiful, like much better than I would have written. And then I tweaked it. And it took me seconds. And I probably would have spent a half an hour trying to come up with something I felt good about before. So I, I cranked two of those out in, in just really seconds and then edited them and they were done. Yeah. And if you think of every time that happens in your day and you add it up, it's a massive amount of productivity. Yeah, across how many people? Just multiply across that how many time. people. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to say something. It's um because it's all over the internet. So it's it, it it's an interesting way to think about it. People often say, is it going to take my job? You know, that's a common topic. And there's this, there's a great quote I saw that just simply said, you know, AI won't take your job, but people who know how to use AI will. And it really makes you think about what we all have to become good at in a world where AI is a part of the workforce, rather than worrying about the fact that, yes, it can code, doesn't matter. Do you know what you want to code? Do mm. you know what a great experience is? Do you know what your customers need? You know those things, let it do the mechanics of some of the coding, and you tune and tweak it. 
But the point is, do you even know what you want? And the people who know what they want are going to be much more effective because they have this. Whereas other people are just out there coding and they're not even sure what they want, which is even more productive. It's at this point of the podcast that I'd like to mention a charity very close to our heart, Prevent Breast Cancer, as the only UK charity entirely dedicated to the prediction and prevention of breast cancer. They're committed to freeing the world from the disease altogether. At Prevent Breast Cancer, they make sure 100% of their research funding is focused on preventing breast cancer for future generations. They are right at the front line in the fight against the disease. And we are right behind them. So the ideation aspect still comes from the human. It's just utilizing the mechanics of the tools to save time, ultimately. Yeah. I think ideation, I do think critical thinking, which probably is an undervalued skill historically, is going to become just a dominant skill. Do you know what it meant? Do you know what it means? Do you know why it did what it did? Do you know what you want? Just really hard critical thinking. Uh, and that's where I see people who are able to use AI more effectively than others. Some people put in a prompt like it's a Google search, like, you know, what is this? Whereas other people are saying, you know, act like an accountant. I'm going to give you this policy. Please tell me what it might mean for my client in the industrial sector. Yeah. Like you give it a really specific question, you're going to get a much better answer. But I knew what I wanted. I knew the client sector. I knew what role I wanted to think about. I knew what policy. So I gave it some thought very well-structured, you know, prompt, and then I get an amazing output. But if I just say a general question with, you know, like you would in Google, you kind of, in the case of a regular search, you're looking for the most open-ended questions. So you get all the list and then you have to read it all. But in prompting with AI, you actually want to be as specific as possible because it's a predictive model. And the more specific you are, the better it pulls out your intent and is able to match it to a potential answer. And just to, to backtrack slightly, Brett, you mentioned earlier that... Uh, in years gone by, the the predominant and core skill to developing AI was very much the data science type yeah. um, skill set. Mm -hmm. Moving forward, now that we've got many platforms that we can build upon, what type of skill set do you see as the real driver to continue the advancement of AI? Fantastic question. So we um we previously had our AI ML teams heavy in data science. And you would say that was 80% of the team. But the mm -hmm. teams we have building with generative AI were business analysts, uh, new roles, prompt engineers, um, something we're calling a model mechanic, which is someone who understands how to measure the output and assess the quality of output against how a model pr pr produced it. And um, you, you start adding, and then also obviously people who understand the overall experience. So people who, not UX design, not, I'm sorry, not UI design, but really overall experience design. Mm -hmm. What persona are you addressing? How does the solution solve problems for them? What kind of information do they need to provide to get great answers? Like each of us individually, we prompt a tool like ChatGPT to get an answer. But when you start seeing this built into more business solutions, the prompting is kind of done behind the scenes. It'll know that you are in HR and you are managing, you know, doing performance management it puts all the context kind of in there anyway. So you just say, how is Bob doing? And it already knows who you are. It knows your role. It knows the kinds of things you look for. So it contextualizes all that. And in a good solution, that goes in the prompt without your input. Like you just say, how is Bob doing? Knowing the way that you are you and your HR performance manager, 
it knows that context because of the way the solution's built and then prompts your question plus the other context to get a better answer. So that's why these people who build with AI, they're not just the data scientists. They understand functional things. That's why business analysts is so important. And prompt engineering is an entire discipline now of how to properly structure context and questions into these things. And then people to validate output. Like it gave you an output. You said, how's Bob doing? And it said, he's doing very well. He seems frustrated. Is that a proper answer? Is that enough? Is there more you want? Like someone has to kind of assess that so that they make the solution better over time. It's kind of a full stack knowledge. I'm just making this up. Sounds kind of good though. It's really a full stack knowledge team that you put on these things. It's, it's yes, the data science and data engineering, there's a huge data component. But yeah. now additionally, these business analysts and prompting and to make really the, the ability to bring knowledge you know, out from AI. Just going back to um, part of the question I asked before around impact on, on industries, but more so on people um, and the evolution of younger people coming up and their career, uh, you know, constantly uh, going in, a, in a, on a trajectory. Even, even if we go back further to education, I think education probably needs to change, Brett, as far as how children are, and 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 in the universities, how we're taught, you taught there about critical thinking rather than necessarily the what. But then also, um, how do you foresee if you if you think about your career and how you you know went up in in, in different stages? How do you foresee that changing over time with the use of uh, AI? I suppose. And some of the more manual jobs when you're at the beginning of your career, not necessarily being the same, perhaps, as they were, you know, back in back in the day, so to speak. It's an interesting question. And, and in the near term, let's start focusing on the near term. Um, education is clearly being disrupted as you look at the percentage of people who are using, you know, ChatGPT to help their homework. But, you know, I still do remember when calculators were banned from schools and then they were allowed in schools. Yeah. And... Everyone thought we'll never know math again because calculators will do all the work. And, you know, they slowly crept in. People use calculators at home for their homework and then no one could trust the homework. Did they really learn their math? Then people were allowed to use it in class. Then people were allowed to use it in tests. And now the calculators people use during tests are programmable, massive. It's just amazing. They're practically computers. And yet people are still learning. And so what happened is more the application of math than the mechanic of math. And I think this is the application of knowledge more than mechanics of typing and writing and, and stuff like that. Now, I I do I met with um, a woman who teaches creative writing. Um, I just ran into her at a, an event, and she hadn't heard of this thing. And I said, well, if you do creative writing, you probably should hear about ChatGPT. She goes, yeah. well, what does it do? So I pull up my phone, and I asked it to make a story about her skydiving um, with a puppy. I just made up something completely random. And she goes, that's pretty creative. And it spit out this really cool story. and she she was scared. She had this visible reaction of like, oh my God, now what? And I said, what was more important? You know, the way that I punctuated or used grammar or cho word choices were that I had an idea that was interesting and creative that you liked. And I said, we're going to have to figure out how to help students to think about what it is they want to create and to use AI to create it. That doesn't mean um, they're not getting smarter, you're not educating, you have to educate differently. I think the same could be true for generative art. You could say that no one needs to paint or draw or take a photograph anymore because you can generate really realistic and beautiful images with, with AI. 
And there was a guy on Instagram recently who had to admit that all of his beautiful portraits were entirely AI generated. He was producing them. Everyone loved them. And he goes, by the way, they're all done by AI. And it should just make us aware that he actually had an eye for it. The reason they were good was not because AI produced it, because I've tried and I can't make a good image with, with AI. But he's an artist who knew how to use it to create mm -hmm. something beautiful. And I think that's a, a big distinction. Um, not anyone can just write a book because they can use generative AI. You still have to have an idea, a thought, a point, and then use the AI to do some of the mechanics of the, of the writing of the book. What's interesting as we talk, and if people are watching this, they'll see that Joe has actually dropped off a couple of times. And she's, she's WhatsApp me as this is going on, Brett, because the irony of us talking about this amazing technology, but yet her Wi-Fi at home is not able to, to be stable <laughs> enough to to uh, to withstand the, the weather. Um, so I'm sure Joe will come back and join us any minute. Um, well, that's the point. We still live in a real world. Actually, it's kind of an interesting point. We still live in a real world. We can talk about AI and the magic of cloud and all that stuff. But every day, because you asked what happens and what changes in people's lives. Mm. And so we still do things. We interact with people. We talk. We fix things. We, you know, we're, we exist in the real world. And I think that while AI might help us do things, hopefully they help us do things so we can spend more time in that real world. You know, the fact that I that I was able to do those two uh, award submissions this morning because I used AI to do it meant I had a little more time to say goodbye to my son when he's not going out to school because I didn't have to spend that whole half hour writing. So yeah. I had a little more time this morning than I normally would. And I was able to spend a little more time with him, wish him a good day. It, I think it could enhance lives. I absolutely recognize that it can disrupt what people have been, what people identify as their skill set up till now may not be the same skill set that is so important in the future. And I get that individually, people will have to adjust to new skills, learning how to use AI, learning put it put it to work for them. Um, more of those critical thinking kind of roles. Maybe that's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's still, I mean, this has been happening forever. It's just happening a little bit faster now and we have to be ready. Yeah, I think you described it perfectly with the biggest change management project or a global change management project. And in that is the word change and people fundamentally without generalizing people too much, but people don't like change because it's what is the, un, it's the great unknown. Mm -hmm. um, but it's about that embracing it. And I think naturally people kind of when they don't like change or they're unsure about something that they don't know, you naturally think about the negative aspects of it. I was watching a, an interview, an interviewer on a US TV channel interviewing the founders and the CTO of OpenAI. And the whole interview was like, a, please tell us the world's not going to come to an end and please just give us guarantees what it's going to look like. And they, they actually couldn't really. But nobody can really predict exactly where it all goes. And I know we all would love a good prediction. Like in five years, is are we going to all be like, um, there's a cartoon called The Jetsons. They were so advanced. They only they only had to work like four hours a week, push a button, that was it. That everything else was done for them. That sounds really idyllic, right? Like we don't have to work, but actually, work gives us purpose, you know. And I think that, that what everyone's unsure about is how does it all play out? What does it mean for education? What does it mean for jobs? Um, you know, what does it mean for day to day life? And maybe we'll all have infinite amount of free time and get to you know create and play and inter interact with each other. Maybe we'll just have different roles that we work in. I, I think it's too early to predict, but I've never seen a time in history where something productive and useful by so many people is simply not used. Mm. You know, there are some things that are only have one purpose, which is not a good purpose or one purpose, you know, a narrow purpose. This has a wide reaching effect. 
um, I'll often talk to a developer or some other expert in something. And they're always like, well, it can't do what I do. That's always the way they start. The deeper and smarter a person is, the more insistent they are, this won't have any effect on them. And then I say, well, tell me what you do. And then I'll pull some internet data off as a sample and say, oh, can it do this? And I put it in there live in front of them. And they're like, it's like that jaw drop moment. Like, oh my God. Um, and then the next question is, well, so what do I do next? Yeah. And then, then we show them how to use it. So I think if you're, you know, whatever role you have, you just have to recognize this is, this is a part of our lives now mm. and it will get better over time, which means we have to get better at how we use it. Yeah. And I, I like what you're saying there about, it's so exciting to think that it can fundamentally create more time to do other things. And how you choose to do other things is completely up to you. I'm I'm a big believer in working and using your brain from a, a classic work perspective for as long as we possibly can, because I think it creates longevity in our lives. Yes. Uh, there's no massive science behind that for me. It was my two grandparents who worked on the market till they were 87 and 89, right? And, you know, <laughs> I kind of use that as an example. Um but I suppose if we have more time to do more things, it doesn't mean that we can't do more work in that time as opposed to play, right? Um, but if you prefer to play, then that's great. I think- Well, perhaps different work. Like there was a time around 1900 where someone said everything that needed to be invented had already been invented. And obviously that's not true. But there's well, you do sort of get these moments where you feel like, oh, we're all done now. And obviously we're never done. So mm. the ability to innovate and to think and to create, I, I think, Jobs will evolve. Education will evolve. Hopefully we, you know, continue to evolve to work with these tools in ways that create more value. It is also about creating, you know, more time, but also more value. Can a company enhanced with AI generate more value, which can create more economic benefits and impact, even create different types of opportunities for roles? You know, I, I think it's hard to say that you'd want to work slower. Like who wants to work slower and yeah. not use the tools that can make them productive? We talked about organizations, and I think we could probably talk more about that and the conversations that you have with your clients. And mm -hmm. But I, I think a, a lot of the purpose of the podcast also is to talk about success and success of our future leaders is obviously quite critical. You talk there about learning to be more critical in our thinking how would how would you describe that to someone who's on an upwards trajectory? Someone you know, you've been a leader of many many people in in, in your career, so you know, a fantastic leader of people. If you had someone on an upwards trajectory and they were listening to this and going, "Bro, what do you mean by that? How do you how do you put that into action?" What would you say? I think there was a moment in my career where I really wanted to be an executive, and I tried to be an expert on things. I thought if I was just an expert. I would move up. And so this leader in the organization would come to me with these ideas and every single time I shot them down because they were bad ideas. Mm. And at least in my mind. And I was just really, really tough on these, on these recommendations. And then she called me one day and she said, why do you say no to everything I say? And I wanted to say because they're bad ideas, but I decided to not say that. And I just listened. And she goes, I need you to think about why I'm giving you these ideas. And then change your approach. So I thought about it a lot because she invested the time to tell me that. And I had to figure out what it meant. And what I realized was she was making recommendations in the absence of any other recommendation she was making them because she was trying to do something, move the business forward, try something new. She didn't know how to move it forward. She just knew it needed to move. 
Mm. And so instead of saying no and telling your 12 reasons why they were bad ideas, I just said, yes, and here's a way you could do it. I had to switch to a critical thinking mindset and realize that it wasn't the question that mattered. It was why she was asking the question that mattered. Mm. And it made me better. I got promoted very quickly after that, which was awesome. But more importantly, I changed my way of thinking. And that's what happens when you have these technologies that are good at something you thought you were the expert in. If you were the best coder in your team and now this thing exists, you know, that's pretty threatening. Mm -hmm. But if you say, what code needs to be built? What problems do I need to solve with code? You become much more valuable to your company. And so my advice to people is to think more about the why and not the how. The how will continue to get done better and better with tools and methods and stuff. But if you're only an expert in, in the how, you miss the bigger picture. And it's really hard to move forward if you can't see that bigger picture. Yeah, so, so it's just a, a lot of thought provocation rather than just mm -hmm. looking at things on on the from a surface perspective. Right. It's so easy to just kind of be book smart and just present facts to people without understanding context. And generative AI is effectively really book smart, but it doesn't know the world. It doesn't know what any of the words mean. It doesn't know you or your business. It's just a predictive engine that does a really good job of pulling out intent and predicting the best likely answer of that intent. But underneath the covers, it's math. It doesn't really understand. We collectively have to understand. That's the best thing that we can provide. And so having that ability then allows us to work with a tool that amplifies that understanding and makes us faster you know, and more effective. But we own that understanding. Very quick segue into another podcast, which we've all been uh, part of. But do, do you think it has an impact on the role of the chief data officer, chief digital officer, AI officer internally now within businesses? Absolutely. So CIOs, chief data officers, heads of analytics, what they've come to realize is that They've been focused so much on the structured data of the enterprise, the numbers, you know, the, the tables. And it's the unstructured data, which is probably the bulk of it and growing really fast, that now has actionable insights in it. So if you take every dialogue that happens in every meeting you're in, every, you know, Teams or Zoom or whatever, just all the dialogue that happens, you can capture that. You can look for actions and risks and engagement in that. You could bring meaning to that, which today is just floats off into the ether. Like we have this discussion and if no one's recording it, luckily we are, uh, no one's transcribing it, it just goes off into the air and whatever we remember is all we have. Mm -hmm. But it's possible to capture, you know, the, the words and things we say and do, all the writing and things we do, the knowledge of our enterprise, which is encoded in documents and things we've created over the last, you know, 30 years. All of that knowledge exists in unstructured data text all over the place. And so um, CDOs are asking better questions now. I had a really great dialogue yesterday about the management of unstructured data and what happens to that data over time. Like, let's say you, you have a document you've been using for years. It's the basis for a lot of your work. And now that versions and changes, you have to kind of bring everyone along to the newest versions. Previously, you'd have to train everyone. But if you're training an AI on these documents, now everyone has the, has the access to the best knowledge. They have to know how to ask for it, but they get the access to the best knowledge so it can move people along faster. Um, but you have to really be good at managing unstructured data. That knowledge is its gold. It, you know, you know, the quote, knowledge is power. That's more so more true now than ever, because now you can use more of that knowledge because of AI.
that yeah. the, those documents, those materials, a text, all that work you've produced. It brings a, a slightly different, a, a more of a level playing field, I think, to people generally, right? Um, it potentially does. Like you, in theory, like every agent could be as smart as the smartest agent. Every lawyer could be as smart as the smartest lawyer in theory. But in practice, you still have to know what to ask. And so I think if you put a room full of people and then you had a, a, a lawyer bot that's there, that's, you know, knows all the legal stuff, it doesn't matter. Like you and I wouldn't know the right questions to ask. So you still have to have somebody who knows the domain and knows the point so they can get the help. And that's, you know, that's why all of us, lawyers use paralegals to do so much of the bulk work. And so it's not as if they're doing all the work, but the collective team between the paralegal and the lawyer and everyone else in part of their office collectively provides the service. Now you have this other capability that can additionally help in that service. Help or replace a paralegal? Help. Oh, I don't know. I So I, I have a family member who's a paralegal and we've talked about this a lot. And there's things that she spends time on that are tedious. She has templates and forms for creating contracts and 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 communications to clients. And yes, you can copy and paste. And yes, there's ways to automate that and spreadsheets and stuff. But um, we've already looked at ways it could be significantly more productive. And so you just say, I need a, you know, I'm going to need a lease for Bob. And, so I keep using Bob as an example, but we need a, a lease for someone. And it should be able to produce a lease based on past leases, maybe even knowing, you know, the type of property or whatever the thing is. So um, I think it just makes them more productive. And then for her, she's a really smart person who also gets bogged down a lot of mechanical work. Mm -hmm. Some of that mechanical work has shifted to AI. She's also able to continue to do the smart stuff. Mm -hmm. So which which goes back to um, it goes back to increasing the value as well. There, doesn't it? If you're automating, you know, your AI is covering off all of those basic tasks. You get more time available to add that value, which then creates organizational value on top. And hopefully a sense of purpose as well. I'll give you an example. So we did a we did a large meeting and people submitted questions during the meeting. We got 53 questions during this 30-minute meeting. And someone copied and pasted them from the app into a spreadsheet. And we were all looking at it saying, oh, I wonder what the big themes are. I wonder <clears throat> how we organize this. Because the questions were all written in free form, typos, just messy. And some of them were the same. We couldn't tell what was the same. So we just copy and pasted into chat GPT and said, what are the major themes of the questions? And it rewrote the questions, collapsed the 53 into 10. And the 10 were a summarization of those questions, really, really well articulated. It was structurally clear and obvious. And then they were piece of cake to answer. And so it was just took someone to think, why don't I just take all that messy stuff, all that input, which is kind of raw, put it in and get something I can then act on. Now, we also then asked it to answer the questions for us, which is another step and sounded a little bit lazy. And it did a good job at creating the beginner answers. We still had to refine them. But we took steps that would have taken us three meetings and just in seconds got the 10 top, you know, the 10 themes of the questions mm. and then generated initial answers. And then we just refined. Yeah, it's brilliant. Incredible. Just going back quickly, Brett, because yeah, uh, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, this is like a, a new employee that's coming in. It's not an employee with 20 years experience. What do you think it'll be like when that employee does have 20 years experience? When we graduate, when we graduate from whatever discipline we're in, I was an engineer. Um, I actually behind me are all my engineering books. I knew so many facts and things, but I didn't know how business works. I didn't know how people work. I didn't know how to team. I, there was, I just didn't know the context of putting that knowledge to work. And 
but I was, I was, I was kind of raw and fresh with just fresh knowledge. Now, a lot of that stuff you don't use every day. Some of that stuff you use a lot. I think, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that AI is going to act like someone with 20 years of experience. I think the whole point of experience is actually experience. But I think that increasingly, like GPT-4 now passes so many of the exams in the top 10%. So um, in the US, these, these are exams like SATs and advanced placement exams. And think of them just as standardized tests for, in, in law and engineering and biology and all these things. And it gets in the top 10% on those scores, which is also the type of people every one of us wants to hire. We all want to hire the A students, right? So, but we want, but we train them. We teach them things. We give them experiences so they can have judgment and are able to be active and then eventually become leaders and eventually become significantly more book smart over the mm -hmm. next several years because it's going to continue to learn more of the input knowledge. But I still come back to the premise that it literally doesn't understand a single word it says. And while that sounds weird, um, it's really, as a predictive model, it's really good at matching um, a thought to an output um, in ways that very, very advanced. And so those assume those will continue to get more advanced, but we live in the world. We understand the world. We understand our business. We understand our peers. We understand feelings. These are the things that experience brings. So I think what you're going to get is just better, smarter students coming into your workforce, but you're still going to have to have this judgment and understanding and experience and perspective and context that this will, this will not have. Everything you just said, just um, I think, is so in line with the everything you've said throughout this whole podcast from a far more of a positive and optimistic outlook than how you know some people are feeling as we talked about the, the elements of change that can have a negative uh, and pessimistic feel it's been it's been wonderful chatting with you again brett um you know i say it to you every time we speak we could go on for a heck of a lot longer and and, and i'm sure yeah. i'm sure we will and we'll do it again but i think what has been just wonderful to hear is, as I say, the positive outlook, the way that um, generative AI can have such a, a big impact on our ability to do things at pace and to do things with certainty. I love the idea that while we're all searching for success in our own way, that we can still achieve that success while still achieving um you know the 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 trajectory at work that you might want but you might be able to get better work-life balance that you've not been able to get in your life so I, I wanted to thank you again so much for your time um and you know I, I know that we all absolutely love chatting with you and really appreciate all the the time and effort that you put into to, to chatting with us as I said Joe went offline for a little bit of time we, we talked about the technology being so advanced, but yet, you know, at times the internet does drop yeah. even in these conversations. Also, I was saying, I was saying it's bonkers that we're talking about these huge advancements with AI and I can't even get a stable internet connection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, but thank you, Brett. Just so wonderful to chat with you. I hope it was useful for you and and, and we look forward to speaking with you again soon. I, I, I love the conversation. You know, this is a topic I'll love to talk about any time and I think there's so much rapid learning um, we should keep the dialogue going because it, it, there's a lot changing every day. This is the fastest moving thing I've ever seen. So um, thank you for the discussion and great questions. Thanks, Brett. Thank you for listening to the Search and Succeed podcast. Please subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'll see you on the next one.